we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the last several weeks on the book of Ruth. Uh, Looking at the book of Ruth from one angle in particular, which is uh, asking the question, how can we show God's mercy to our neighbors? We've said that Ruth's life, the story that's depicted there, took place at one of the most chaotic times in Israel's history. It took place during the period of the Judges, uh, when uh, over and over the book of Judges tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time without, with unclear uh, political authority, a time of political turmoil. It was a time of spiritual turmoil. It was a time where uh, the powerful and the wealthy could act without impunity or could act with impunity. And in all such situations, including chaotic days like ours, Uh, Some of the people who are most easily victimized in that world, who can easily slip through the cracks, are the vulnerable, the poor, the orphans, the widows. And into such a world, we meet Ruth, uh, herself a widow, her mother-in-law, Naomi, also a widow. And the question comes, in the midst of this world of chaos, how will God advance his kingdom? How will God push forward his redemptive plan in the world? And we see in the book of Ruth throughout that it happens through the mercy of his people, the concrete mercy of his people towards people in need. And so, uh, today we turn, uh, our reading starts in Ruth chapter 2. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Through, sorry, Ruth chapter 3, verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, 
I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But he has... But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. One of, my, uh, one of my favorite short stories uh, that I've ever read is by a man named Tim O'Brien. Uh, O'Brien was a, uh, is a veteran of the Vietnam War and uh, wrote a, a book of short stories uh, called The Things They Carried, for which he won uh, the National Book Award. And in one of these stories, uh, the, the story that it's named after, The Things They Carried, he tells the story uh, of a group of soldiers in Vietnam, and he paints this incredibly rich story solely through narrating the things that they carried with them uh, as they went uh, over mountainous terrain and the heat and the humidity. And he tells the story of them being weighed down by, by weaponry, uh, some by radios and, and communications equipment, others by medical equipment. And you can feel the weight uh, of all that these men carried as they went. He tells the story of other things that they carried, pictures of girls back home, uh, reminding them of their, their longing to be reunited, Some of them carried crosses, reminders of their faith. But he uses this as a metaphor for talking about all that these men carried with them on their journey. And then there's the other baggage that couldn't be seen. Towards the end of his story, he writes this. They carried all the emotional baggage of men who might die. Grief, terror, love, longing. These were intangibles. But the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had tangible weight. They carried shameful memories. They carried the common secret of cowardice barely restrained, the instinct to run or freeze or hide. And in many respects, this was the heaviest burden of all, for it could never be put down. And by and large, they carried these things inside, maintaining the masks of composure. It's amazing. He tells this entire story just through this metaphor of the things that these men carried. And like all good art, you know, you encounter it and it gives you new eyes, a new imagination to see your world. And if we had the imagination to see it, we could look out at our neighbors and see the things that they carry, the things that we as human beings carry. Some of them we might see physically in the the lines on their faces and the stooped shoulders. But other things we can't see. We can't see the shame. 
that many of our neighbors carry for what they're convinced makes them unlovable. We can't see the guilt that they carry for things that they've done that they don't feel can be atoned for. We can't see the doubts, the longings for intimacy that they carry. The struggle of of making ends meet, holding down a steady job in the midst of a difficult world. We all carry with us burdens that we can't see, that we can't uh, understand uh, with our eyes until we really get to know somebody. But every human being carries burdens. If you've walked with anyone, uh, any of your loved ones or friends through serious illness or even death, you know how powerful in in our culture the desire is to not be a burden on anyone. Nearly everyone uh, that I've walked with through illness says some version of the phrase, oh, I, I just never wanted to be a burden on anyone. In America, we're taught uh, that your worth has to do with how much you don't burden those around you, how much you carry your own burdens. And yet, in Galatians 6.2, Paul tells us, uh, writing to the body of, of Christ in Galatia, to bear one another's burdens is an act of love. Right, that to be human is to have burdens. To, to love anyone in this life is to dip your shoulder and to take onto yourself a part of their burdens. Right, I bring real burdens into all of my relationships. Right, to, to be in a relationship with me is to carry some of my burdens. My wife carries my burdens. I'm blessed to have friends that I can unburden myself and share with them what's going on in my life. And we're to do that for one another in the church. And we're to do that for our neighbors, to love anyone is to carry their burdens. And that's what's going on in this passage in Ruth. Ruth and Naomi come as women heavily burdened into Bethlehem. They're bearing the the social burdens of their widowhood, the financial burdens of being unable to provide for themselves, uh, the cultural burdens of being outcast and and, and left alone, the financial burdens of owning uh, their deceased husband's lands but unable to pay for them, unable to even work them. So they come in with some very real, very heavy burdens. And over the course of this story, their burdens get laid at Boaz's feet. He finds himself as a man, as we looked at uh, last week, relatively free of burdens as we think of them, although certainly uh, as a human being he had them, but he was fairly well off. He was a a land-owning man uh, of some wealth and property. And yet, by the end of this story, Ruth's burdens and Naomi's burdens have been laid at his feet. And the question before him is, will I carry these burdens? Will I take my neighbor's burdens onto myself? And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, is the reality of the burdens that we bear, and then what it means uh, to bear one another's burdens. First, the the reality of these burdens. So as we saw last week, Ruth meets meets Boaz in the field. He is gracious to her. He says, uh, come along, uh, continue to glean in my field, take some of my produce. He feeds her and her mother-in-law for over two weeks here at the barley harvest. And Ruth brings that report back to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And it sparks an idea in Naomi's mind. She sees that somehow Boaz, this older, wealthy, powerful man, has shown some affection and love uh, for the young woman Ruth. And she says, I've got a plan. You go in uh, to Boaz because he's a relative of ours and he could be our redeemer. He could be our, the Hebrew here is goal. He could be our kindred redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. And what this idea is of a kinsman redeemer, it takes some explanation because we don't have an exact parallel in, in our world. But a kinsman redeemer could be anyone in the same tribe or clan 
of some means who can step in financially and with their life to intervene for someone who had become down on their luck. Principally, it happened in situations like this one where a man died leaving a widow without children. And so widows like Ruth would be left with their husband's land, but without any inheritance, without any, without any children to come after her to take over the land. And so in a tribal society, it meant that this land could then be purchased uh, by somebody else from the outside. It could leave the clan. The clan could lose their power. They could lose this land. And so some relative, anyone really of means, could intervene and say, I'll buy off the land and treat it as my own. I'll marry the widow and provide children for her. But those children won't be considered my children. They'll be considered her children and the children of her deceased husband. In that way, that deceased husband could continue to hold on to the land. He could pass it down to the next generation. And the land could stay in the tribe. It could stay in the family. And so that's the idea here. And Naomi says, aha, Boaz could be that for us. Now, crucially, uh, she overlooks a couple of details. She overlooks the detail that, that this thing normally took place from the closest relative out to the further relatives. And there was somebody closer to them who should have the right first to decide if he wanted to redeem the land and to redeem uh, these women. But she saw something in Boaz that she thought she could take advantage of. She saw his, his, his uh, affection for Ruth. And so she hatches a plan. She says, Ruth, here's what I want you to do. Boaz is going to be fresh off of the barley harvest. We all know that these men, they're going to be out there. They're going to be working hard. After the harvest, after all that hard work, they're going to be exhausted. They're going to have a little bit of wine, maybe too much wine. And then they're going to fall asleep right there with the crops. And here's what I want you to do. When he's good and tired, when he's had a little bit to drink, I want you to anoint yourself with oil. I want you to, the words here are literally, I want you to pour your clothes on yourself. Put on your best clothes. And I want you to go into his room, uncover his feet, lay there next to him, and then do whatever he asks you to do. <laughs> it's worth noting here uh, that there is no cleaning up this story. Uh, when it says expose his feet, his feet are a euphemism for his most intimate parts. Uh, this, she's asking him to go down Strip him naked, and then lay yourself there with him. And then whatever he says to do, you do it. It's, it's not a stretch to say that Naomi is trafficking Ruth. Uh, that she, is, that she is, is literally, tragically, pimping Ruth out <laughs> to meet her own needs, to, to see that her own needs are taken care of. And so that's, what, that's what's going on when it says that she uncovers his feet and she lay down, lays down next to him, and it says that Boaz woke up startled right? He, she didn't come and uncover his feet and curl up down by his feet, although that might be startling, right? That, that, would be, that might be creepier, right? If you woke up and your feet were out and somebody was just sitting there waiting on you. But it's more than that. She actually peeled back the covers and laid there with him. And so when it says Boaz woke up startled and said, who is this woman with me? Yeah, that's an appropriate reaction. Uh, if you go to bed alone and wake up with someone there with you, I would be startled. I would ask, who is this that, that, that I've woken up next to? And he woke up, uh, not just to the shock of a woman laying there next to him when he had gone to sleep alone, but he wakes up to be presented with several very real burdens. 
that have all of a sudden been laid at his feet. Not using feet euphemistically there. They've been laid at his, at his real feet. There's a burden to his reputation that he's been presented with, right? This is an upstanding man of Israel, somebody who endeavored to live his life with faithfulness. And all of a sudden, here at a time when, which would have been a communal time, a time when people were out for the harvest, where other men were sleeping there with him, to wake up with a woman there next to him, places a burden on his reputation. Naomi has deliberately laid this burden at his reputation, saying, I'm going to put him in a difficult position, put him in a place where his reputation is compromised to see what he'll do. And so uh, Ruth is or, uh, Naomi has disregarded Ruth's reputation as well as his own to put her there. There's a moral burden, right? He's a, as much as he desired to be a faithful man, he is a human man. And so there's a moral burden that's been laid on him. He went to sleep untempted, and all of a sudden he wakes up tempted. He wakes up with the question of, will I take advantage of this situation? Will I wrestle with this temptation? Will I treat her with honor and with dignity? And so he wakes up with a very real moral burden laid at his feet. There's a relational burden that's laid at his feet. Boaz is put in a position where he can't help but offend somebody, right? If he sends Ruth out, if he sends her back out to the city, he, he, he risks disgracing her. He risks offending her. He risks sending her and Naomi further out away from society. But if he does what she asks, if, she, if he takes on, this responsibility to be her redeemer. He potentially risks alienating the other relative, the relative who was closer to her, who did have the first right to step in. And so all of a sudden, his relational world has gotten very burdened. It's gotten very messy. And he has a decision to make. And then finally, but probably not least, is there's a very real financial burden that's getting laid at his feet when she says, cast your wings over me, be, my, be our redeemer there's a very real financial burden that comes to Boaz, right? Really what she's asking, and, and to put it in, in our terms, to be someone's redeemer was to buy their land, to take over responsibility of the land and all of the debts that came with it, and to take over the responsibility for Ruth's livelihood, bringing her into his family as his wife, any future children, as well as her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? This is an immense financial outlay. This is the equivalent of somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I've got a great idea. Would you buy my house, but then let me live in that house and feed me along the way and take care and raise my kids? Like, thanks, but no thanks. That's a, that's a, if you put that on your house listing, when you put it out there, you're probably not gonna get too many bites, right? This is an immense financial burden that comes to, and is laid at Boaz's feet. And so the question uh, for Boaz, this man who went to sleep without these burdens and wakes up in the middle of the night with them, is how will he deal with them? And the question comes to us, how do we deal with the burdens of our neighbors when they get laid at our feet? Right? How do we deal with the burdens of those that we love, the burdens of those that we live when they come to us? <clears throat> you know, we live in a culture that increasingly values freedom from burden and obligation. Right, if you look at it statistically, fewer and fewer people uh, are choosing to get married and have children, uh, choosing instead to, to remain relatively uh, free from those obligations. Right, it's America, so, uh, so financial freedom is the goal to which many of us spend our entire life striving, to get to a place where we no longer have to labor, to work, to provide for ourselves or for others. 
Right, we, America is the, is the society that values just life out on the open road, on the back of a motorcycle, nobody uh, to, to lay their obligations at your feet, nobody to burden you. We, we value being unburdened and free. And yet, uh, biblically, a mark of, of maturity, a mark of character, a mark of Christ-likeness is the willingness, the ability to take burdens onto ourselves. So how do we deal with, with the burdens they come to us. Maybe it's a friend uh, who comes to you in the midst of a divorce or in the midst of a difficult time. How do you deal uh, with the burdens that your friends lay at your feet? Maybe it's the burden of your spouse going through a period of depression, a period of anxiety. Maybe it's the burdens uh, of your children. Maybe it's the burdens of your neighbors, realizing that as you start to build a friendship, that they have places and ways that they need your care, that they need your help. When burdens are presented to us, how do we deal with them? How do we accommodate them? And so let's look uh, at what Boaz does as he's confronted uh, with these burdens laid at his feet. The first thing that we see that he does is that he guards her dignity. He takes incredible care uh, to guard her dignity. He neither casts her out and says, get away from me, woman, what kind of harlot does something like this? Uh, you're, get away? He doesn't do that. He guards her dignity. He doesn't take advantage of her. He doesn't seize the opportunity uh, laying there with this woman asking, saying, I'll do whatever you want. He guards her dignity. He protects her. He doesn't cast her out, but he doesn't take advantage of her. He sees what's really going on as she asks him to become her redeemer, to, to take her as his wife. That's what's going on uh, in verse 10, where he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater the, than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What Boaz recognizes is that this is a woman who's exercising, even in the midst of being taken advantage of by her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's exhibiting an incredible amount of kindness and love, not only for Boaz, but also for Naomi. Boaz was considerably older than Ruth. That's what's going on when he calls her my daughter repeatedly, right? This is a younger woman. And he says, you could have gone after younger men, right? You could have gone after men who are younger and stronger and better looking. But instead, you've come to me, an older man of some means, because you're not only looking out for yourself, you're not only thinking of romance, but you're also thinking of someone who's able to care for Naomi. You're also thinking of someone who's got the means and the stability to care for, for your deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, your deceased husband, to honor their memory and give you an inheritance. That's what he says. This, this kindness is even greater than the kindness that you showed to Naomi when you promised to not leave her. Because this kindness shows that you're thinking not only of your own wants and needs, but you're also looking out for your family. You're also looking out for them. So may God bless you. So in a place where her dignity was very much at question, he upholds it, he sees it, and he honors her. He protects her from harm. He says to her, lie here until morning, right? Don't go out there into the night. Don't go out there where you could be assaulted or violated. Stay here with me. I'm not gonna do anything to you, but lay here and be protected and be safe. He protects her. Uh, from harm and rest, allows her to rest in safety. He calms her fears. He says to her in verse 11, do not fear. Do not fear. 
Imagine all of the fears that Ruth brought into her, brought in with her there. Fear of her own future, right? Fear of, of what would happen to her and Naomi. Would they be left to poverty and desolation? Would they be left to homelessness? What was, what was going to happen to them? So she brought that, that fear. She brought the fear of the moment. Is he going to reject me? Is he going to cast me out? Is he going to make me feel even more of an outcast than I have to this point? And yet he says to her, do not fear. Have no fear. I'm going to protect you. He protects her from her fears. He won't shame her. He won't cast her out. Do not fear. He protects her reputation. He sends her out early uh, in the morning, the time when it says it was still dusk, uh, or still uh, before dawn. He says to her in verse 14, uh, and let, let, it not be, let it not be known that the woman came to the, flesh, to the threshing floor. He sends her out at an hour before anyone could recognize another. So he protects her through the darkest part of the night when she would have been most vulnerable. But then he sends her out before anybody else is awake, before anybody else can see what she's done. Uh, so he allows her to be protected from that shame and that exposure. And so he looks out for her there. And then finally, he meets her physical needs. Right, she came uh, dressed in her finest clothes, but willing to take them off. And yet he says, hold out your clothes and let me fill them up. Let me fill them with grain. It says that basically she took this clothing that she had put on and she, she billows it out and he just pours in uh, another load of barley for her to take back to Naomi to feed them for another week or two. So he looks at her physical needs and he takes care of her. He takes care of those needs. And so here's a man uh, presented with these incredible burdens all of a sudden. And we see him dealing with her with incredible strength and ability with incredible gentleness and tenderness. He thinks of her. He thinks of what it must be like to be her. He guards her dignity, protects her from her worst fears, fills her up, meeting her physical needs, and then sends her back uh, to her mother-in-law to wait while he goes, and in the next chapter we'll see, as, as he pursues this path of being her redeemer. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean uh, for those of us who live in this neighborhood, uh, who live in the city of Jacksonville, who live surrounded by neighbors with very real burdens. What does it mean for us uh, to be people who bear our neighbors, whether they be our very, very close neighbors, those with whom we share a bedroom and a house, or our far neighbors, those we share a block and a city with? What does it mean for us? Well, a few things. First, I think, I think we have to recognize uh, that we live as a church in the middle of a secular age, in the middle of a secular place. That's news for many of us. Many of us remember a time in America where it, where it could be said that we weren't a secular world, where many of our neighbors shared the same assumptions that we share about the reality of a God, about the dignity of human life. Um, they're lived with more common consensus. But we have to come to terms with the fact that we live in the midst of a secular age. Uh, most of our neighbors, your neighbors and mine, uh, really don't care what a preacher has to say. Uh, I know this uh, acutely well. Uh, is someone who has seen the looks on their faces, uh, is someone who has dropped awkwardly in the middle of a party when asked what I do for a living, when I've said, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay, I'll go get a drink or find out somebody, somebody more interesting or at least less awkward to talk to. Right? We live in a world that has already turned, turned down the volume on the Christian message. And so we have to learn to think of ourselves as a missionary church in the middle of Jacksonville, Florida, 
just as much as we would if we were uprooted and placed in Afghanistan tomorrow. If we went and were to go and live as a, as a 150 person missionary team in Afghanistan, we would, I, th- I trust all of you, that we would learn to think like missionaries. Right? We would learn uh, to speak the language of the people around us. We would take that burden onto ourselves to learn a strange tongue. We would figure out what the burdens are that our neighbors are carrying in Afghanistan, right? We'd figure out if they needed education. Some of our teachers would figure out how to start a school. If they needed health care, some of our, our doctors and nurses and healthcare workers would figure out how to provide the needs uh, for the needs that they had. If they didn't have clean running water, some of the engineers among us uh, would figure out how we can work to get reliable, clean water supply there. Right, We would go in looking for their needs, and we would think like missionaries on their behalf. But something happens to us in the midst of living in our everyday lives, in our everyday world, is that we stop realizing that America, uh, contemporary America, is just as secular as Afghanistan is Muslim or as India is Hindu. And that we have to learn that that's what we're doing as we make our lives with our neighbors. When we walk into the school that we teach at, We're there to bear the burdens of those students and to to take responsibility for their education. As we walk into our places of business, we're taking on the burdens of those with whom we work, of those with whom we serve. As we walk into our neighborhood here in Lackawanna, we're going with our eyes open to look for the burdens that our neighbors carry, for ways that we we can dip our shoulders and take some of those burdens up on our own shoulders and to carry their burdens for a little while with them. While many of our neighbors uh, may have grown death, uh, death, deaf uh, to the words of the Christian message, uh, the truth is that they carry the very same burdens uh, that human beings the, world's o- the world over and throughout history have always carried. Right? They too carry the burdens of guilt and shame. They too carry the burdens of, of, of maybe have written off a relationship with a transcendent God, but yet still longing for some kind of connection beyond their lives. They carry the burdens of trying to care for their, for their children, for their spouses, for their own lives in the midst of poverty and, dis- and difficulty. They carry those same burdens. They carry those same burdens. And so in a world in which we've already said it's countercultural for us to take up the common obligations, even of family and marriage and things like that, but to come alongside neighbors and start to ask, how can we carry your burdens, is perhaps the greatest witness Uh, in this age uh, that we could have for the gospel. For it to be known that Christians are those who will carry your burdens with you for a while. Christians are those who believe that Jesus is the bearer of burdens. And so they come uh, to help us carry ours. And so practically, some of you in this room uh, need to let it be known that you have burdens that you need help carrying. Right Before we're burden bearers, we're people with burdens who, who sometimes need help. In the Christian community, the fellowship of Christians, the church, this church, is really the only society that I know of where the only entrance requirement for membership is to say uh, that I, I carry burdens. I carry the burdens of my own sin and I'm in need of redemption. I carry the burdens of my human weakness and frailty and I need help. I carry the burdens of my addictions and I need people that I can be honest with who can come alongside me. And some of you are at a place in your life where you need to let it be known to others that you are carrying heavy burdens and you could use some help. You could use prayer. You could use uh, financial resources. You could use brothers and sisters to walk alongside you. But for some of you, 
Uh, the take-home from this message is to raise your hand. Not, you don't have to do it right now. <laughs> to go up to someone and to say, listen, I, I've carry, been carrying burdens and they are too heavy and I've been carrying them alone for too long. And I need help. In this church, we won't do it perfectly, but we'd love to be a group of people that can carry your burdens with you for a while. So for some of you, you need to let others know uh, that you need help carrying your burdens. Some of us need to be more open to carrying the burdens of others, right? Some of us need to be willing to say, my life, I can, I can, I can out of love for my neighbors and love for Jesus, I can take on burdens beyond what I'm currently bearing. Now, there's reasons to be wise in this. Notice Boaz doesn't immediately say, yeah, sure, I'll be your kinsman redeemer. Yeah, sure, take it on. He takes, he takes some time, he reflects on it, he pursues uh, this other kinsman redeemer, right? So there's a need for discernment, right? All of us, we only have so much that we can carry. So we need to be honest about the fact that we can't carry all of the burdens of the world. So there's some legitimate reasons to not carry burdens, but if I'm honest, a lot of the reasons I don't burden myself with what burdens my neighbors uh, is not, those, or not the, uh, the things of wisdom or discernment, but rather just sin and selfishness in my own life. Right, that is, a, that is from the very beginning of the biblical story. That is a part of it, uh, is that we committed to ourselves uh, are slow to care for our neighbors. We see it in the first chapters after the fall uh, when Cain kills his brother Abel and then God comes looking for Abel and he says, where's your brother Abel? And remember what Cain says? He says, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, that's the idea. You are your brother's keeper. You are made, the human family is made in such a way that you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. Your brothers or your sisters when they're hungry, when they're homeless, when they're unsheltered, when they're, when they're lonely and in need of affection. They're, that's your problem. We're not islands. We are our brother's and our sister's keeper. And usually when we're unwilling to bear their burdens, it's not about our lack of capacity, it's about our lack of love. Last summer, uh, I went hiking. Uh, we were uh, up in North Carolina, and Haley and I and my two, my two sons, Hart and Houston, went for a hike. Um, it was, it was a, perhaps a moment of over-eager dad aggression uh, to think that my three-year-old was gonna complete this hike. Um, and so about halfway up, uh, this couple-hour hike, uh, Hart, who was doing so well for so much of it, starts saying, Daddy, carry me, right? Daddy, carry me. Um, and so at first, like, no, you can do it. My legs hurt. You got legs. Come on, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We'll rest later. But then at some point, even, even me with my visions of us summiting this mountain, go, okay, I've, I'm going to carry Hart up and down the rest of this mountain. So I put him on my shoulders, and we, and we did it. We finished the mountain. And, of course, as soon as we get to the parking lot and he gets back to his grandmother, you know, it's, I hiked a mountain. <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, you made it. You, you were there. Um, but that was an easy call for me because it's my son, right? When he said, Daddy, I'm not going to make it up the top of the mountain, right? We did, what, I didn't say, all right, well, here's a granola bar. Best of luck to you. Hope, hope you make it down someday. No, right? Because as my son and I feel a sense of love and obligation, I gladly took him on my shoulders, right? And usually it's, it, I would have been a lot slower if another 36-year-old man had come up to me and said, hey, man, my legs are just super tired. Um, would you mind if, if I got on your shoulders and we went from here? No, because you're not my problem. Um, but the scriptures do call us to view the burdens of our neighbors as our problems, 
and to look on, our, look on them with the same level of love and affection that we look at our own families with and to be willing to carry them, to be willing to take on their burdens. But all of us need to realize uh, in the midst of the burdens of this life uh, that all of our burdens are borne by Jesus, right? That, that, that whether you come in and feel yourself to be in need of, of, t- of admitting your burdens and letting others carry you for a while or you come being convicted that you need to carry the burdens of others for a while, all of us have to recognize that, that all of us bring burdens that no other human being is able to carry. And so we bring those burdens to Jesus, the one who from eternity past was forever unburdened, right? There is not a more unburdened life than living at the right hand of God the Father from eternity past uh, and giving him glory and enjoying his perfections. There is no more unburdened life. And yet Jesus willingly took on our burdens. He took on the burdens of a body, the ability to get sick and tired and to break down. He took on our humanity, taking on himself a body so that we could know healing, right? He took on the, the infirmities of the, other, of the bodies that he met in his life, bringing healing to our blindness and our deafness and our lameness because he took on a body. He took on the burden of our sin, right? He, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus was forever without the burden of guilt, the burden of shame, the burden of sin, and yet he willingly took that on himself to the cross on our behalf taking our burden with him ultimately to bear the final burden of death on the cross. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to cast our anxieties onto Jesus because he cares for you. Other translations say cast your cares onto him. Others cast your burdens onto him. Right, that the only reason we can bear the the burdens of others is as we cast our burdens on Jesus, bringing our guilt to him, bringing our shame, bringing our needs as we experience him carrying our burdens, we learn, oh, this is what love is. This is what love does. Love bears the burdens of those that he loves. And only then, then and only then, can we begin to look out on our, on our neighbors and start to carry their burdens. Let's pray.